strength comes in admitting that we're imperfect and that we can't do it all and we're human. Welcome to Teach Me Something New. I'm your host, Britt Morin, and this is a production of iHeartRadio and Brit & Co. All my life, everyone's told me I should focus on being good at one thing. But the truth is, I'm curious about a lot of things. But how do you learn about everything? The answer? Make the world's best experts teach you in less than an hour. So come along with me as we all learn something new. Hi, y'all. Today you're hearing a special live episode of Teach Me Something New. We're recording in front of a virtual audience of entrepreneurs from our 10-week virtual startup school called Self Made that just kicked off a couple weeks ago. And I can't wait because we've got an amazing guest for you all. Her name is Melissa Bernstein. Melissa is best known for co-founding Melissa and Doug, one of the most popular toy brands ever and a personal favorite in the Morin household currently valued at more than a billion dollars, and she is now onto her second entrepreneurship journey with the launch of Lifelines, a new company and new book all about mindset and mental health. Today, she's here to teach us all about her journey and how to better navigate the intense emotions that come with such a demanding career. Welcome to the show, Melissa. Thank you. I'm so happy to be here. Yay! I'm so happy to have you, and so are all these women. We are on Zoom for those that are listening and can't (laughs) see what's happening, but there are 140 so far joining and more joining every second. So let's just dive in. First of all, I had no idea that Melissa and Doug was started in a basement in 1988. Can you tell us how you got into the toy business? Absolutely. That's the whole story in and of itself. So... I was of the era when you did not pursue your passion. You basically honed in on a career and you followed it through your entire life. And that was what you did. So Doug and I, you know, right out of college embarked on very traditional careers. I mean, I shockingly decided to be an investment banker and he was in advertising. And after a very brief time, we were both, I guess I could say, absolutely miserable. You know, I felt like I had a two-ton gorilla on my shoulders and didn't know why I was getting up in the morning. I truly felt like a flower without sunlight and water. So we decided that we couldn't do this any longer and had to sort of leave that corporate life and set out and do something on our own. And by the way, we were only dating. We had been dating about two and a half years and we decided that we would go away for a fateful weekend and not leave until we decided what we were going to do with our lives. So that was sort of the impetus. Well, that's really ballsy because my husband and I have been married for 10 years and we are just launching a venture fund together as of this year. And everyone can't believe the risk of a husband and wife starting a business together. But did you ever consider it was risky to start a company with someone you're just dating? I mean, everyone in my life told me, this is risky. You can't do it. Don't do it. SOS. Like they were screaming as loudly as they could. But I say it a number of times, at some point, the cry of your own soul to rage freely is louder than society. And I think we knew we had to do something that made our hearts sing and we wanted to do it together. So we said, 
sorry, we're going to pull our meager life savings and start a toy company, no less, which everyone was like, are you crazy? Right. And what was that like? What were the beginning days like? How did you even get started? I mean, the beginning days were really, really tough. Doug and I run an entrepreneurship program at my alma mater, Duke University. And we always say, you have to be ready for this. This is not for the faint hearted and weak of mind and soul because it was so, so challenging. And I think everything you could imagine going wrong went wrong again and again and again. And we just had to keep saying, it's okay. We're going to handle one challenge at a time and look it squarely in the eye and get over it and keep on fighting to live another day. And how many years did it take you to feel like you were actually successful? What were some of the pinnacle moments that happened along that path? That's a great question. I mean, we definitely thought at least three or four times of completely turning in the towel. And I think very early on, we had an incident where our only factory basically copied our products and brought them to the same show that we were exhibiting at the New York Toy Show, which is the largest toy show. And we were so morally disgusted by that, the fact that our only factory would copy us, that we decided we were leaving the toy industry. So we went through a lot of knocks, I would say, and it took us probably a good seven, I'm sorry to say it, seven to 10 years to start to feel like we had something that we could repeat. It's about finding that thing that is your essence that you do, which for us was to transform the dull, lackluster, boring toys of yesteryear into something fun and magical for children. And once we did it once and had success and saw, oh my goodness, this is just something we can continue to do, that took about seven years. Actually, Andy Dunn, who's the founder of Bonobos, Mm -hmm. has a famous quote, which is, it takes seven to 10 years to build a brand. So if anyone is starting anything, they shouldn't bank on it being a hit for at least seven to 10 years. And actually, for me, I've been running Britain Co., for 10 years now. And I do feel like only in the last couple of years, like when I go places like to a hair salon or somewhere and I'm like, what do you do? Oh, I run this company, Britain Co. More often than not, people have heard of it or think they've seen it or, you know, at least understand it a little bit more. And it didn't have that in the early days. It was really difficult to have those conversations. That flies in the face of today, which is quick, quick fix, you know, quickly sell it, quickly raise money. And I find with my young entrepreneurs, I'm having to constantly like buck that and say, are you in this for the quick hit or are you in this to build a brand? The same thing. And if you're building a brand that you ultimately one day hope that the depths of your soul will be a household name, I mean, it takes one brick at a time and not focusing on the destination, but really on every step of the journey. So what did you do in those early days? It took seven to 10 years to sort of, quote unquote, make it. How did you fund this? Was it bootstrapped? And how did you deal with those copycats that were happening all around you? Yeah, so we self-funded it for the first over 20 years. We funded it 100% our own using a credit line from a bank. So when we started to need money, we were fortunate. You know, we had our local bank that we 
entrusted. And then that turned into Bank of America. And just as we started proving ourselves, we got larger and larger credit lines. And I think we just kept making mistake after mistake after mistake. And I think one of the things, you know, when people say, why have you succeeded? One of the biggest reasons is because we learn from our mistakes. Although it was terrifying for me being a self-proclaimed perfectionist, Doug was really good about looking mistakes in the eye and kind of saying, okay, why did we make this? What can we learn from it? And how do we not make it again? And that making it once is actually the greatest thing ever. Making it twice is not so good. So we would say, okay, we messed up again. How are we going to fix this? And we would just strive to fix it and learn from it. And little by little, you start realizing that you're gaining traction, despite the fact it doesn't seem like it. Okay, so I have to ask, like you and Doug, you were dating, then I assume you got married at some point in your Melissa and Doug journey. <laughs> like, yeah. Did you guys divide and conquer? You know, one of my favorite couples, Julia and Kevin Hartz, who run the company Eventbrite, have this phrase that they make it work because they never edit the same spreadsheet. Like they can't <laughs> be in the same doc at once uh, because they'll get in each other's way and disagree and all those things. So with a co-founder, and especially if it's someone you're related to, how do you divide and conquer? I love that question. And at one point, we were so poor that we could only afford one desk. And we actually both shared the same desk. He was on one side and I was on the other but he was on the right side and I was on the left. So for a while, we were really close in proximity and in everything we did. But I think when you talk about having a business partner, it's critical to not be in the same section of the circle. And I think ours works so well. And I call it more a, a pie. And he is one half of the pie and I'm the other. And it's just by luck or karma or whatever you want to call it that we ended up that way. because. Yes, we are both incredibly strong people. And if we were both in the same side of the pie, it never would have worked. And interestingly, my oldest child, who's also an entrepreneur, had problems with his first business partner because they were both the same side of the pie. Even though he's a very calm, you know, rational person, it never will work if you're both stirring the same pot, so to speak. So I think even though we have similar skills, we naturally divided and conquered. And I think I focused pretty much exclusively on the creativity and creating all the products and a little bit in selling the products too, because creating them makes you understand how you want to sell them and portray them. And he really focused on everything else, all the operations and all the hiring and all those other things that I didn't want to focus on. So it was a really amazing partnership in that we weren't really stepping in each other's pies. Totally. I think that's a great analogy with the pie. And I know that a lot of co-founders do that sort of split, the operational split and then the creativity split. So if you are like an artist or a designer or creative, like you can stay in your wheelhouse and someone else handles all the business stuff. In the tech world where I'm from, it's also usually like the tech split and the operation split which I guess could be the same idea, creativity and ops. So if anyone is out there thinking about, oh, I need a co-founder, what skill set should I be looking for? Hopefully that's a good guide for you. So I have to say, what a brand you have created. Can you 
do a little humble bragging for us. Can you rattle off some of the more impressive stats of Melissa and Doug? And I think it's important that you do this because I want women out there to hear a successful woman feeling proud of herself. So can you tell us a little bit about those numbers, those stats? That might be something I've never done. So you might be doing a first. If Doug were here, he would be rattling them off like nobody's business. So let's see. We have grown 32 straight years, even through COVID. We have hit $500 million in sales. We sell about 70 million toys a year. We were the very first toy on Amazon in 1999, which is a pretty cool thing. And gosh, I am always odd that I will be watching innumerable of my favorite shows and have to stop them because I'm like, oh my gosh, that's my toy. It's on, you know, Breaking Bad. It's on Homeland and it's on SNL. Like one day I was watching SNL and Kristen Wiig was like using one of our puppets. And usually I don't even know about these things. And I'm like so overjoyed. It's like I'm a little kid. I scream and Doug's always like, what's wrong? What's wrong? I'm like, our toy. (laughs) So I think one of the best things is one of my son's girlfriend at the time said something like, Melissa, you have just become woven into the fabric of America. And it was like one of the nicest things anyone said because I never thought of it that way. So I'm really proud to have built one toy at a time. And another reason for our success, which you might be asking soon, is that we never focused on the end goal. We never focused on selling 70 million toys a year. I focus on every single toy I create. And every toy is just as important as the last one and is created right from here, from my soul and from my heart. And it doesn't matter about the one I created last or it doesn't matter about where it might end up on the charts of sales. Like It matters to me that it might have the ability to touch a child and unleash their imagination. That's all I'm ever thinking about. That is so sweet. And I have to tell you, I just love the amount of creativity you put into it with the design aesthetic. And so from the early days, how involved are you, especially now? I know you're sort of transitioning now, but like how involved have you been over the years in ideating the toy and then actually designing it? I'm involved in every single toy we've created. They all spark for me. However... I don't have any other skill. Like I see it in my head, finished exactly how I want it to be, but then I have no ability to bring it to life. I'm not a designer, a trained designer. I'm not an engineer. I'm not an industrial designer. I'm not a graphic artist. That's when I have this incredible team that I hand it to and they help bring it to life. And I'm there every step of the way, sort of seeing if it matches the core tenets and the vision I have, you know, right in my heart. So it's really fun. It's like giving birth, you know, every single day. Totally. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. All right, well, switching gears, 
you have a new journey that you are going down. And it's something that I love about you as an entrepreneur. You're so vulnerable and you're not afraid to keep it real by talking about what you describe as existential depression. So before we get into the new venture, can you first explain what is existential depression? Sure. So full circle, I now know I have a blurse, which is one of my words. It means I have a blessing and a curse. And this ability to create from nothing didn't come without its challenges. I now know, but I did not know that until rather recently because, you know, it took until about five years ago until I put the dots together, connected all those dots and realized that I am afflicted with something called existential depression. It's so rare that it's not even in the DSM, which is the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders. And when I read about it and actually looked it up in sort of the dictionary, it floored me to such an extent because I realized in my late 40s that this is what I had been afflicted with my whole life. And basically, since the moment I was born, I felt this deep, overwhelming sense of despair and what I call a meaning crisis. It wasn't your traditional depression that's from a trigger or from an event. It's a sense that life has no meaning. I have no understanding why I'm here and no understanding what I'm meant to do in my brief time here. And because those questions were so deep and so dark and unable to be voiced, and certainly because I couldn't voice them, they couldn't be answered, I lived really in this sort of very dark, despairing place that made me think it was all futile. And because that demon that told me everything was futile wanted to destroy me, I needed to create a facade and push everything I was feeling way, way, way deeply below the surface and repress and deny and disassociate from those deep, dark feelings so I could effectively function. And basically what I did for my whole life is adopt a facade, a perfect facade based on perfectionism and performance and achieving, which many of you women will relate to because it's a fairly female trait, this perfectionism, unfortunately, and basically go through life as a high-achieving, existentially depressed person who sort of denied everything she was feeling. So this started from when you were young, you were saying, and clearly you've now had a bunch of success. So was it further exacerbated by being a business owner? Did it impact you more as an entrepreneur? Or do you think that your existential depression would have been the same no matter what? That's a great question. So believe it or not, founding Melissa and Doug was one half of my salvation because I created from the time I can remember from age two, I was writing musical compositions. I wrote verses like in my head and I put it all down on paper, but it was so dark and despairing that I never let it see light and I never showed it to anyone. And for the first basically 25 years of my life, I never found meaning in my creativity because it never touched anyone and it never brought my life meaning. It was just this output that just you know funneled through me and never saw light. However, when Doug and I started Melissa and Doug, and I created just out of nothing sort of our first line of puzzles, I felt something I had never felt before. And it was like my creativity was a faucet. And the whole beginning of my life 
one side of it was darkness and one side of it was light. And the whole beginning of my life, the light side had been turned off. The darkness side was turned on. And I funneled this tremendous despair into darkness that just went into despair, that went into darkness and it stayed darkness. But when I realized that I could actually create toys, no less, from this despair, something light and bright that had the ability to touch children and bring them joy, it was like I realized I had a choice. I could actually turn off the dark faucet, turn on the light faucet, take that very same despair and channel it into light and continue to channel it into light for the next 32 years. And that became truly my salvation because it showed me, whereas in my earlier days when I was really at my very lowest, I felt that there was no meaning and that I was the victim of this dark creativity that just like raged through me. I suddenly saw that I had a choice whether to keep it darkness or turn it into light. And that became my mantra that I tell myself every single day, which is step on out of the head, moving into the heart, free to channel all dread into jubilant art. And that is my life-saving mantra. Can you say that one more time? I think we need to hear that one more time. Yeah. I write verse, so I have many, but my number one is because it's truly what I have to do every day. So my head is a prison. And if I stay here, it is not a good place. So I must step on out of my head, moving into my heart, free to channel all dread into jubilant art. And jubilant is the act of choosing because I can very easily channel dread into dark art (laughs) and that will never touch anyone or I can channel it into jubilant art. Uh, And I made the choice to channel it into jubilant art. And I know your new book, Lifelines, chronicles a lot of this journey. And you do have a bunch of poems and verses in there. Were you always this like amazing of a writer? Where did this come from? (laughs) Are you just like a woman of a hundred (laughs) skills? You know, I think my salvation is creativity. And I learned that those who suffer from existential despair happen to also have what are called hypersensitivities. And they show up in five categories. And basically, to be able to ponder life's meaning is sort of something that takes a higher sensitivity, which is the same reason I can create from nothing, because the beauty and the pain of the world are both unbearable for me. So I have these very heightened sensitivities that allow me to create. Now, I can't exist in a crowd of people. I can't make small talk. I can't do a lot of the things that most people can do so effortlessly. But being in my head creating is something that for me is like breathing. So I think, you know, we all have our blurses, right? Although for the first 25 years of my life, I wanted to kill myself for my blessings, I guess you'd say, for the things that allowed me to create, which were living in my imagination, talking to myself, you know, tons of ticks and afflictions and being really dark. Now I realize that if I didn't have that, I would not be able to create. And honestly, creating is the most, I have another word, exilifying. Ooh, I like that word. So I straddle the line between exhilaration and terror. And I couldn't figure out a word. So I had to make one myself, which is exilified. So creating something from nothing is the most exilifying thing I can ever do. Thank you so much for sharing that, by the way. I think it's beautiful. And 
for those that don't know, I think you do know, like most artists, whether they're music artists, actors, actual artists, do suffer from mental health issues. And in fact, one in four women suffer from mental health issues. My husband and I started a foundation five years ago called Sunrise with the goal to actually find the cure for depression because we know so little about our brain, which is insane. Like mental health is the only category of health where you literally verbally tell someone how you're feeling and what your diagnostics are, and then you can get drugs for that. There's no biomarkers telling the doctor what actually is happening undercover there. And so it is crazy to me that we don't have more research around all this, that there's such a stigma about this when it's so prevalent. If it's not one in four of these 200 people listening to this call right now, then it is, you know, the three out of the four who's not afflicted on this call has a sister, has a cousin, has a partner that is suffering and going through this. So thank you for breaking the stigma. And I do feel like only in the last decade has the stigma started to be broken a little bit more and more. But were you actually suffering inside all this time while you were building Melissa and Doug? Or were you transparent about what was going on with your team members, with the general public, with your investors once you had them? Like, how did you cope with that? I hid every single shred of it from myself and from the world. Because again, you know, my affliction was so deep and so dark and so overwhelming that I thought if I let it in a bit, it would submerge me. So the only way I could effectively exist and have six children and build a company was to deny it all. And it wasn't until the cry of my own soul to be seen authentically grew so loud as I got older. You know, I had fixed one part of it. I had made sense of things through creation. And I knew that creation and creating was my salvation. But there was still a big part that, wasn't being filled, which was my acceptance of myself in totality. Because although I knew I created, I had never accepted the part of me that was able to create those deep, dark, eccentric parts that I was so ashamed of because they separated me from being popular and being loved and accepted by society. So as I grew older, I couldn't deny that cry any longer. It became so loud. And the energy we spend denying who we are and trying to be someone else is exhausting. And I knew one day I woke up, I was like, I can't do it anymore. And in a way, the toys I created, albeit from my soul in every sense, they were hiding the person that created them behind them because they were so light and bright and fun and playful. And yet I knew what was channeled into making them And I was desperate to show that part of myself to the world, whether they accepted me or not. I was just like, here it is. I'm coming out of the closet. So that was my bid in this Lifelines venture. It does feel like coming out of the closet. I think that's a really good analogy. And There are days where it doesn't make sense for you to probably work. What do you do on the days that are really difficult? Do you have a process you go through? So the process I did to come to terms with this second part of me is basically the centerpiece of our lifelines ecosystem. So finally, 
I realized I was going to have to stop racing out there, racing out towards society to get the next gold star or create the next toy, stop racing away from who I was, stop for the first time in my life. Stopping was the hardest thing for me to do because I was trying to ensure my legacy by creating and just running this feudal race and make that journey inward. And that's when four years ago, I had to admit that I needed professional help, which by the way, a perfectionist in me, the perfectionist in me would never admit. So I finally enlisted the help of an incredible therapist and we took this journey inward. And that involved for the first time having to go deep in here and look everything I was in the eye, including that initial nothingness, that emptiness that spawned my existential malaise in the first place. And that journey was so arduous, difficult, but also revelatory that I wanted to create it for other people to go on as well. And one of the letters of that journey, A, because it's the journey to inner space and space, the letters signify five different contiguous trails. The A is a lap. And that was the hardest leg of the journey for me because basically what most of us do, even once we stop, we ground ourselves and we perceive all the things we're feeling, which in itself is a big endeavor. What we then do, at least what I did, was I began to judge it, right? The minute I felt anything that wasn't perfect, I would go into, why are you feeling that way? You have everything in the world. Like, stop being so morose. Stop doing this. I would just continually berate myself. And I've had to learn. It's taken me years to just allow myself to feel everything I am feeling. Once I was able to do that, it took me going back to my childhood traumas and unearthing them and giving myself love for the love I never received again and again and again. Once I was able to do that, believe it or not, my low days pretty much ended. It doesn't mean I won't wake up a little low some days, but I now know because I understand what it means to offer myself compassion on those days, I'm going to have to give myself some more butterfly hugs <laughs> and I'm going to have to engage in my lifelines. You can see one of them. I drink tea, which is like one of my, and I do it even on this. You know, the warmth grounds me and I hold it before I'm about to speak to all of you. And I'm like, here I am in my heart and I might drink an extra couple cups of tea before this podcast. I just got back. I take an hour long walk with Doug each day in nature because Again, it brings me right back here. And I know on those low days, I'm just going to have to offer myself some self-care, which by the way, I wasn't even on the list of self-care for 50 years. So it's a big step. It's a practice. And it's something I have to do each and every day without fail. Yes, yes, yes. We're literally seeing clapping from the audience. I'm loving all the head nods out there. There's a great article out of the Harvard Business School about the making of a corporate athlete. And it's almost like a Maslow's hierarchy pyramid with self-care being literally the foundation. If you want to be good at your job, at starting a business, you've got to take care of yourself first. And it's not this yeah. old school thing where it's like, don't sleep, never see your friends and family, eat shitty food. It's like, no, eat nourishing food, go on walks in nature with your husband, <laughs> like hang out with your friends, sleep well, and do the things that you love because that is going to funnel into your business. Can I tell you something crazy? 
I always heard that expression of put on your own oxygen mask first. And I always like scathed at it. I was like, that is the most selfish thing anybody could ever do. I would never do that. I would always put my kids' oxygen masks on first. And it was the way I saw myself. We have a bathtub, this beautiful like hand-forged bathtub. I would brag, I've never taken a bath in it. It was like my martyrdom became my badge of honor. And it was like, I don't need to take care of myself. I'll take care of everyone else from an empty well and I'll do it with a smile on my face. But I realized, you know, one of the volumes in my book is martyrdom that you can't give from an empty well. You end up becoming bereft and bitter. And some of my most bitter verses are about being a martyr and feeling used, even though I was determined to never be that way. So I've learned the hard way. And I now try to say to young moms, like, I know it doesn't seem like it. I know you want to give everything to your kids and put yourself on the back burner. Don't do it. You will become a bitter, angry martyr because they won't appreciate you (laughs) many times. And you'll be expecting their appreciation. And then when you don't get it, you will be very, very disappointed. So it's critical. And I now see why putting on your own oxygen mask first makes sense, although I never did. It's so funny you say that. We just had Diane von Furstenberg on the podcast and she was talking about the same thing, taking care of yourself first and then everyone else. And I said, oh yeah, like the oxygen mask. And she was like, what? I've never heard this analogy before. And I I had to explain it to her. So yeah, the oxygen mask analogy is alive and well, everyone. Yeah. I hung my hat on this thing that I'm going to do it all. I'm going to not show a chink in my armor and I'm going to be everything. And it's just going to look effortless. And I thought that was my strength. But I now realize it's actually the opposite. The strength comes in admitting that we're imperfect. Mm -hmm. and that we can't do it all, and we're human. And it's only in that that we truly are able to connect with others. So it was the opposite from this flawed misperception that I had my whole life, which is really sad. And my hope is I can get other, you know, younger folks to realize that well ahead of when I did so that they don't have to become martyrs. For sure. And speaking of which, you are launching your second company, Lifelines, and it's kicking off with a book. But what is the big idea for this new brand you're building? If you were to state the Lifelines elevator pitch, what would it sound like? Lifelines is really based on showing others that they alone have the ability to make meaning in their lives. And we are going to unite this incredible community of soulful, authentic people who will show you the path. They can't lead you down it. Only you can make your own journey, but we can surely shine our light on it for you. Beautiful, beautiful, really well done. Love elevator pitches. I always say to our entrepreneurs, if you can't articulate what makes your venture special and different from anything else on the market and better to serve someone's needs than anything else, then you've got to, Go back to go. You got to rethink about what you're bringing to life. Totally. 100%. Yeah. So let's actually switch to some audience Q&A. So both Katie Logan and Seigel are asking, how do you balance work and motherhood? Oh, God. You know, especially in the early days when you don't have a team that can help. 
So balance is one of those bad words in my vocabulary. It's like perfectionism. And I think when we strive for balance, it's a very bad thing. We're only going to be disappointed because honestly, I hope I can say it to all of you. There is no blank in balance. Zero. Don't try to find it. And with our business and six children, I promise you there's not. However, there's a couple things that have been my core tenets for myself. The first is, if you are going to be a working mother, show pride to your children in what you're doing and communicate to them at every point how important this is to you. I always said to my children, Melissa and Doug is one of my children. It was actually my first child before you. And it's as meaningful to me as any of you, not more, the same. And I communicated to them about what I was doing, hopefully for others and for the world to show them that they should never feel guilt in combining motherhood and career. And I think if you want to be a good role model, especially to your daughters and showing them that they can have it all, then don't show that working is so tough for you and you're so guilty about leaving them because then you're showing them that they should feel the same way. Yes. It's the same with self-care. You know, the only reason I was able to self-care for myself is because I didn't want my daughters to be martyrs either. And I wanted to show them Like your mom's going to care for yourself because you need to care for yourselves too. So I think that's really important. Uh, I love that. And I agree. I think the thing I learned on that note is instead of saying, sorry, Austin, mama has to go to work today or mama has to do a meeting. It's mama gets to go to work today. I'm so excited about my meeting. Like I'm helping a bunch of women start their own businesses and invent their own products. It's so fun. I love what I do. Like the more you can talk about that, even when you're having a hard day and you really don't want to go to work, like the more your kids see work is just a fun place to be. And I'm guessing that my kids who are only four and six, but it's probably similar to yours, will become entrepreneurs because me and my husband are both entrepreneurs and we literally invent ideas every day. Yesterday we were skiing yep. and we were like, oh, we should invent this new ski helmet that has a, like a pigtail thing for women's hair. <laughs> like, and We said that in front of our son and he was like, oh, that would be a good idea. I love that. And you could actually do it this way. And, you know, he's six, but you're just starting to infiltrate them at such an early age by thinking that ideas are fun, that they are yes. possible, and that we get to have this amazing job. We don't have to have this job. Yes. So although when my kids were young, they would cry, they would hang on my leg, don't go, all the other mommies, don't go. You're. Why are you the only one? I'm happy to say I have old enough children now that I can tell you the, the answer, the moral of the story is, Every one of them wants to combine career and parenthood. And my oldest is an entrepreneur. And my two next are in lifelines with us in that business. So it works doing it that way. But the other thing, the second piece of that is to be present and 100% focused on what you're doing when you're doing it. So even if you're working 90% of the time and with your kids 10% of the time, if that 10%, you are utterly focused on them and really hearing them and giving them your utter and complete attention, that will be enough. That's all they crave. If you're a stay-at-home parent and you're never focused on them and you're always doing a million things, that's gonna be worse than someone who's working 90% of the time and focused 10% of the time. So I made a point when I was at work, once I had proper childcare, I focused exclusively on work and I wasn't worried about what was going on at home. 
And when I was at home, I never brought work home. I never, you know, was multitasking and talking about this. I was trying to focus completely on them and really engaging with them. Oh, I love it. All right. A couple more questions. What about the toy industry in general? This question is from Ashley Kegley Whitehead. She wants to know, is it supportive? Is it super competitive, male or female dominated, hard to break through for any of these entrepreneurs that might be entering the toy industry? Any specific advice for them? Oh, the toy industry is brutal. It's a tough one, but it doesn't mean you can't 100% succeed. We were never part of the industry. Doug and I were always outside the industry. We were always thought of, oh, that nice little couple, that young couple, that little upstart. You know, we'd sort of get the little pats on the back from the older folks 30 years ago. And we just quietly did our thing very outside conventional toy industry. I think we snuck up on a lot of them and we were probably $200 million when a few people were like, wait a second, what's going on over here? What are these folks doing? Because everything we did was non-traditional. We didn't even distribute the traditional way. So we really were able to just quietly percolate alongside until we went and kind of overtook them. So it doesn't really matter what the industry is, in my opinion. Like, you don't have to be part of it. You don't have to engage in it. Just do your thing. Have your unique lens on what you're doing. Have a reason. It all starts with this beautiful idea that hopefully spurs from something in your own life that is imperfect that you want to fix. And I think it's all about fixing a problem that a lot of other people need fixed too. And once you can do that, it doesn't really matter what industry you're in. If you have an idea that will help other people, then it's easy. Then it's easy to figure out the path from this beautiful product that you're sitting with to how you get it distributed. Ah, perfect tee up, by the way, for our class starting in a few minutes because we're going to go into all of that. The last question is one piece of homework that you could give anyone listening around mindset as we all move forward in the world. Oh, that's a great one. I mean, again, one of my other mantras is we can stay a lowly victim blaming others for our plight or start living with intention to make every moment bright. So mindset for me is jumping from being a victim and that it's not in my control and I'm sort of like swayed by what's going on to I can choose my actions, my behavior, and my attitude toward life and really strive to make meaning and a difference in the world and in my own life. So I think when we believe that the power is within us to turn our darkness into light, everything changes. And that's my intention to inspire tons of people out there that they don't have to wallow in despair. They don't have to hide in the shadows that today they can choose to step forward and unearth those sparks and set them free. Just beautiful. Honestly, thank you for your vulnerability, your story, what you've shared with these amazing women and everyone that's going to listen on the podcast. Lifelines.com is the website. So thank you so much, Melissa. It was such a pleasure having you here and best of luck with everything you're pursuing going forward. Thank you. Congrats on what you're doing. Thank you. Good luck to all of you on your ventures. Sending you lots of good energy. 
Thanks for listening to Teach Me Something New, a production of iHeartRadio and Brit Co. I'm your host, Britt Morin. Find more information about each episode at Brit.co slash listen. You can also find me on social media. I'm at Brit or follow us at Brit and Co. Teach Me Something New is executive produced by Allie Ives and Allie Perry with additional production and sound design by Mark Lemmerjazy and Aaron Peterson. 